Pig. Oh, that's good. Climate. Climate. Future. Ooh, really long. Dot com. Boom. We did it. We did it again. I mean, what, 36, 37, 40 times. And we haven't got arrested. Uh, and uh, we got Bob Dylan on the run. And we're waiting for... You know, all the all the apparel from from everyone to be thrown at us like like it is to James Taylor <laughs> from the crowd. That's our ultimate goal. That's what we call Nirvana. Yeah, and and, and as I see, we still didn't scare off our guests today. So um, we <laughs> welcome are tuning in from two different continents, actually very different time zones today. So it's evening in uh, Europe, and it's uh, eleven thirty a.m. in California. And we're saying welcome to Charles. Hey, Charles. Thank you. Great to be here. So Charles is the founder or one of the founders of Checkerspot, right? That's right. Yeah, we founded Checkerspot. Scott and I founded Checkerspot in 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. I think it's great that that you made your time actually during a working day to be with us tonight. And um, Nina may might have already told you a bit about our podcast that it's all about driving and uh, yeah, creating awareness for the innovators in the material space that will drive a sustainable future with materials for every one of us. So we're super happy to be here with you um, and check a spot, of course, um, because uh, that's a in bio-based innovation that we will dive into uh, in a bit. But I think um, what's always in the first focus is the person behind these innovations and um, we would be super happy to get to know more about the person charles (laughs) and how you came to your mission and uh yeah what's what's your background how did you get inspired to 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 start checker spot yeah my background um gosh goes back to, to where I grew up. I grew up in a, in a small town in central New Jersey, um, not too far from, from New York City, but a part of New Jersey that is surprisingly rural. It was a, a town that, you know, New Jersey is called the Garden State, which I think sometimes people forget or don't think about. And where I grew up was um, very rural, I think a lot of farms and, um, and Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. And, and and Bell Labs ended up being really important, really significant because I didn't know it at the time. This is now in retrospect looking yeah. back, but you know a lot of innovation around um, technology, semiconductors, like the creation of the internet, um, satellites. Um, you know, hearing the Big Bang was first heard in the town that I grew up in, and and as a consequence of it being located in this small town in New Jersey, um, there there was a real emphasis in the high school, a public high school that I went to around math and science. You had just this community of you know physicists and mathematicians, and um, and, and it was inescapable that that would be an area of, of focus, and that I, I gravitated towards that. I really came to love science. And so when I went off to college, 
I was thinking a lot about majoring in science and I ended up focusing on pre-medicine. I was thinking about going to medical school, but, but also, um, majored in a humanities majored in history. And, and my career has been defined by the integration of science and in particular biological science Uh and, um, history and, and, of segment of history around like business and economics. And, and it's from the study of history that I've just come to a point of view that the most significant, the most impactful change societally mm-hmm. has come from economics and business. And, and I, I've developed a conviction over my career that business can be a force for change. It can be a force to catalyze good things for humanity. And it's interesting because when you, when you, when I think about or when I hear some of the the criticisms around, let's say, you know, big business, whether that's yeah. agriculture or whether that's you know the petrochemical industry, I think sometimes it skates past some of the most innovative things, you know, going back to the industrial revolution in the 20th century that created value and made quality of life better for most people on the planet. It just happens that we maybe index too far and we haven't leveraged newer technologies to build and to grow in ways that are more constructive. And, and, and this intersection of business and biotechnology has really been kind of the focal point of my career. And I grew up working in the biotech industry. I started off after college going to Wall Street and I was a, a junior investment banker for a few years, but then moved from New York to California and was in a variety of corporate development and general management roles in at biotech companies that, you know, kind of fast forward culminated with starting Checkerspot in 2016. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a super interesting background, especially what our listeners cannot see is that you look so young. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm, I'm older than I look. <laughs> I think that's that's probably the California climate that makes it right. <laughs> and, and the lighting in the room because you can't see the gray in my beard. <laughs> you know. No, but I I think we I we we just uh, had a, a podcast um, with uh, someone also from the bioeconomy space, and exactly this has resonated very much with what you just said. That I mean, we need also commercialization. Uh, feasibility or commercial feasibility actually to drive these solutions in into scalability, right? So I think yes. this is a very, very, very interesting thing that you just came up with this in the, in the same context with bioeconomy in the end. But before I, I tell too much what I understand about Checkerspot, um, what is Checkerspot actually doing? Like, how would you explain it to a five-year-old? Um, this is easy because I've got a couple of kids that I have explained Checkerspot. <laughs> so Checkerspot is at the core, we're innovating and we're innovating by leveraging the best of biology um, to create new performance materials, materials like urethanes and textiles or textile finishes more specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, that 
make products better, um, but have the added benefit of coming from a more sustainable source relative to petroleum or some of the big commodity vegetable oils. And, and one thing that I, I don't explain to you know, my kids, but I'll, I'll circle back to my kids in a second, is that the, the global economy runs on carbon. And we've heard so much in the last few years, whether it's at places like the World Economic Forum or at COP26 about the movement towards electrifying the transportation fleet. And, and now, of course, we have you know, Fortune 500 companies that have set really aggressive targets around carbon neutrality. We all know where the world needs to go. But, but what we, I think we sometimes forget is the global economy runs on carbon, and that includes polymers and materials and ingredients that we all use in everyday life, that there, there hasn't been an alternative. And, and that's fundamentally what we're able to do is to engineer and, and utilize biology to get new molecular building blocks, oils more specifically, where we can tailor the chemistry of the oil. And that's important because it allows us to get to physical properties, functional properties that ultimately make better personal care products or better food products or better skis. And, and kind of coming back to the kids, like I can talk about molecular biology or I can talk about chemistry and material science, but a five-year-old or a seven-year-old isn't going to understand that. But when I show them skis that have materials that make the skis better, that they can wrap their head around. And, and this is a really significant point in the context of how we built and conceived CheckerSpot's strategy, because we've been so focused on getting to applications that allow us to bring the bioeconomy to relevance, to show people what's possible in a really clear, emotive way based upon products that they can utilize, as opposed to, in contrast to, I don't know, geeking out on the lipid biosynthesis pathway and polyurethane chemistry. Oh, John likes that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really, my, my, my nerd alert's turning on here. I'm loving this here. This is great stuff, you know. I mean, a couple of things. Uh, uh, what you said in your in your, uh, your beginning there about uh, the, the importance of the economy as a driver, econo economics and business, I mean, that just, that maps right into to uh, one of one of the pillars of, of plastic climate future, as you may know, which is we're, we're looking for uh, viable solutions, and we we include viability to mean yeah scientifically viable, but but also to mean economically viable, and, and we 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 use that term that you've probably heard. We say the economy is part of the environment, so so that that's one thing that resonates. Also, you know the science based science based science based. Uh, that that's all of what what we're about. So so we need hit those things. It really uh, really hits a lot of green lights for us, which is really so cool. Plus your background, your story. Uh, when you say about carbon, um, uh, if if I understand you, uh, what what you mean is you're not talking about replacing carbon. You're talking about finding new ways to assemble carbon and new ways to uh, source carbon and use carbon that's already uh, in in the circle. 
kind of displacing fossil-based sources. Am I right there, uh, or am I embellishing and thinking uh, uh, on the wrong track? No, that, that that's exactly right, John. And and you can think of like if I elaborate a bit on the process that we utilize, we're working with a microorganism, microalgae, and and one thing that I think most people don't think about or think about on any kind of regular basis is that the petroleum that we extract from the earth is by and large fossilized, plant-based, algal-based oil. And so, and this is not something that, that we or CheckerSpot discovered. This is long known to be true. And, and so we're, we're utilizing microalgae. We have a fermentation-based process so it's not what most people associate with microalgae with photosynthesis, like open ponds, or you know, there are some groups that are using microalgae in photobioreactors. We use fermentation. So think big steel tanks, commercial scale big steel tanks, where the microalgae are fed sugar, fermentable sugar. And that sugar comes from plants plants like uh, corn, plants like sugarcane, sweet sorghum, sugar beets, and, and even one day cellulosic sources of sugar. So you have plants that are converting carbon dioxide, pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide and sunlight photosynthesis convert that carbon into chemical energy in the form of sugar, that chemical energy is fed to microalgae and we can direct that carbon, that chemical energy into specific chemistries of oil. That's the process. And so when you speak of this is an alternative approach, an approach that allows for the potential for circularity, that allows us to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere, that paints a picture of abundance as opposed to extracting a finite resource like petroleum, mm -hmm. all of those things resonate and are in line with what you described. So coming back to your kids, um, so you feed algae with some uh, candy and then you make plastics. Yes, except that they call it allergy. <laughs> they don't call it algae. <laughs> <laughs> I right. can't get them to say algae correctly. It's allergy. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's good. I got, I got it. Uh, now I also understand because I'm actually the, the level of the five-year-old. <laughs> but, um, but you mentioned skis, one of the applications. So, so what are like, what are like your, uh, yeah, your lighthouse products or applications uh, that uh, that uh, check us part is in where where, you, where everyone kind of understands the potential of of your technologies. Yeah. Well, well, first, Matt, I'll, I'll highlight that I touched on skis before and, and we, our point of entry in the market has been outdoor recreation yeah. and we worked on over a few years developing and engineering materials that could be built, could be fabricated into skis that would make skis perform better. And, and we succeeded at doing that. We came to market through our brand, Wonder Alpine. And Wonder is, <laughs> we call it disemboweled. 
So it's WNDR Alpine. And Wonder Alpine is an outdoor recreation brand that is targeting the backcountry enthusiast. And we engineered materials in the skis, backcountry skis and backcountry split boards, specifically targeting um, strength to weight, targeting damping or energy absorbing properties. And, and we also discovered along the way that with one of the materials, we could engineer some interesting adhesive properties, like how the material bonds to adjacent materials and ski construction. And so important to note that we came to market first in outdoor recreation and skis has been a really interesting proof point and way to bring to life what's possible with the materials. But let's now shift and focus on the materials themselves. There's five materials that today we're commercializing. Two are urethane based. One is a cast urethane. Um, it's, it's poured in liquid form and then cures and solidifies. It replaces the sidewall of skis yeah. and snowboards, which is typically in conventional ski production, ABS plastic. Yeah. And in addition to the physical properties of light weighting and damping and the adhesive, the bond strength that I was referring to, um, the bio-based content is well over 60%. So it's not like sprinkling in something. Mm-hmm. And, and then the second material in ski construction is um, a rigid foam that we engineered into a, a wood foam composite that replaces the core of the ski, targeting mm-hmm. similar performance properties. Those two materials are um, where, where we started. We've since added a third material. Actually, we announced the launch of this material last summer. And this material, it's called Spiral Made, and it utilizes the flashings from the ski manufacturing process. So the flashings being the waste stream, what's milled off of the, the, the primary product. And we applied chemistry to those flashings, targeting additional physical properties around um, that, that could be utilized, the spiral made is utilized as a boot plate where bindings on the skis are fixed to the boot plate, but where we engineered the, the strength, the torsional strength, when the screws and the bindings go down into the ski mm. for a greater uh, grip, greater strength for the bindings to be affixed to the skis. So spiral made is a, a material that we're really excited about because it opens up the potential for us to think about ways we may be able to take product back at the end of life. In addition to like the benefit of you know, waste management and utilizing waste streams from the manufacturing process, it opens up the door to take product back at the end of life and uplift the value into other application sets. So spiral made and this um, additional material is the third of five. The fourth and fifth, I'll I'll finish by saying, fourth is a textile finish that we're commercializing in partnership with the Swiss-based specialty chemical company called Beyond Surface Technologies. Mm -hmm. And this finish is 100% bio-based has equivalent performance to conventional textile finishes in wicking applications. Mm -hmm. So wicking is in moisture management, pulling moisture away from the skin, like a base layer as an example. And that finish is called 
Midori Biowick WA. The WA stands for With Algae. Mm-hmm. And with Beyond Surface Technologies, this is now commercially available and in a range of brands. The fifth and final material is actually an, uh, an oil itself that comes from microalgae that we're now selling to customers in the personal care market um, where there's unique performance advantages of the oil in combination with other ingredients for, uh, for personal care. And so two urethanes, the waste stream from the manufacturing process called Spiral Made, and then Midori Biowick, the textile finish, and then the fifth is the oil itself. All right. Well, here yeah, I, I have a couple of questions now. So, but I think I start first with the material thing, um, because one of the slogans on your website that you can find is "materials matter." And um, you just mentioned the urethane thing, and what I found is this pollinator kit, which is a a polyurethane kit for for designers and like you know yeah. do it yourself uh, thing. And what I really liked about it is the slogan that you have to this one. It's called "Democratize Renewable Materials." Because we talked about the kits before, and I think this is something what what I wanted to ask is like. You studied science, materials, uh, John studied chemistry. I, I was in the field of materials and I think Chemical engineering, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I have to interrupt. Chemical engineering, <laughs> not chemistry. Chemical engineering. <laughs> um, and I think that's that's so important to 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 have this knowledge. And I mean you're you're obviously had it inherently because you were uh in close to or raised close to bell labs, but do you think we need to to teach our kids more and, and basically, as you say, democratize materials more to also drive this commercial aspects that people make these choices for, you know, renewable materials that are m- more expensive or at this stage because of the scalability or those skis that you develop uh, with these materials that have to have a higher cost than conventional materials? Do you think in the end education is going far enough with with um, yeah material science or should we should we drive it further also in education? Um, I, I think that there's a lot to unpack around how we can improve education. I think in the spirit of democratization, which is the term Matt that you invoked, um, we're we're seeing a lot of signs, especially you know, kind of going back over the last twenty years, where the accessibility to information um, is unlike anything that we've seen. In fact, it's created a lot of challenges around um, really understanding the veracity of of information. And you know, for the first time in in, in my lifetime, you know, being engaged and involved in discussions around what is truth. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I find as a parent, my wife and I spend a lot of time trying to encourage, especially our older kids, to really question their sources. Like, where did that come from? And yeah. have you thought about it in different ways? And, and so I think, you know, the ability to access information is as easy as it has ever been. I think the way that kids are taught today is is sort of unprecedented. I think we're seeing a shift from centralized education to more dispersed models. 
I think you're seeing that even in higher education um, and, and, and definitely at universities and in graduate schools, but even beyond um, where you now you can you can learn about certain functional areas without necessarily having to go to school or having to get a degree. Um, and so there's a lot that's happening around democratization in, in those in that context. But but I want to come back to to the pollinator kit and what what we intended by referring to the democratization of materials. And and there there are some similar themes to what I just tried to articulate. But but it's our belief, our conviction that some of the greatest ingenuity, creativity around product development doesn't necessarily reside within you know, established organizations. And, and you can look historically at, at certain markets. You know, one example might be um, consumer electronics and whether it's you know, an iOS operating system or an Android operating system. What, what really makes the devices amazing and what draws consumers in perhaps above and beyond the engineering of those consumer electronics are the applications that we utilize on them. And those applications aren't created by a small number of you know, large established organizations. It's actually disparate engineers and creative minds that in a, in, a, in a arguably capital efficient way have created apps that can then be hosted and populated onto consumer electronics. And so we, why shouldn't that apply in the context of you know, hard goods and material applications? Why shouldn't we empower you know, students and designers and you know, DIY hobbyists and enthusiasts in addition to the product developer that's at a Fortune 500 company. Like, we should be thinking about how we make this as easy, easy and accessible as possible. And, and the reason to do that has a lot to do with driving the relevance and driving the transition towards a post-petroleum future. We all know where we need to go societally, but in order to, to de-risk that migration towards a post-petroleum future, we need scale, we need use cases, we need relevance, we need applications that bring to life and show what's possible. I'm not ashamed to admit that the very first time that I held an iPhone back in the early 2000s, I didn't get it. I was like, where are the buttons? Me I, I think you're not alone on that one. Me either, yeah? Yeah, but oh boy, were we proven wrong? <laughs> Correct. And, and that, <laughs> that lesson learned definitely has applied to how we think about this concept of empowerment, working with designers, empowering designers as we migrate to a more abundant future. Hey, Matt, can, can I interject here real quickly? Just uh, uh, I'm like having like my little list here, like checking the boxes. Another one that this gentleman just checked <laughs> is uh, uh, I, I, on the education. And, and I, I, when you said uh, you, you're teaching your your kids to be uh, I'm paraphrasing, excuse me, but uh, skeptical. Yes. And, but I would add cynical. No. You know, I mean, this yeah. is one of the explicit statements in, in one of our pillars, you know, uh, in the writing that Matt and I we did when we started all this. We really mean this, and it's so cool to 
to, to hear this in reality. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I, it, it, these, these, these acronyms are not so, in, uh, known here in Europe, but I know in the U S you know, STEM, and then I would add to that steam or I didn't yep. add it, but you know what I, I didn't coin yeah. that, but you know what I mean? Where science, technology, engineering, math, um, um, and, and also the arts, you know, I think, yeah. Um, hearing from your background, hearing just getting picking up on your vibe and what you're doing. Uh, I mean, this is this is what it's all about, you know. So, okay, Le uh, thank you for letting me talk. I'll, yeah, <laughs> get quiet and listen again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but and, and it also fits well with with the strategy that you described in the beginning that um, you you have to make these innovations in some way tangible. That's why you probably chose also the skis. Um, as one of the you know examples where where you can like showcase very nicely also the benefits. Um, where where did that come from? By the way, are you uh, a skier yourself, or was it driven by your own passion, or how did how did you come about choosing uh, skis? Yeah, I, the the answer the short answer to the question is I do enjoy skiing. Um, I've had the 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 privilege of more recently spending time with some mountain professionals and, you know, professional athletes. And so I'm a lot more sheepish about describing myself <laughs> as a skier. Um, but, but I, I do enjoy being in the back country and, and being in the mountains. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the inspiration for selecting outdoor recreation, um, goes back to some past experience and, um, and without going too far off on a tangent, like the key, the key idea, idea, the key theme is that you know, we love to think of ourselves as being extremely reasoned and rational in, in making decisions. Um, but I think there's a preponderance of, of data that, that show that as human beings, like part of our nature is it's inescapable that emotion plays a role in how we view the world, the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. And, and when it comes to innovation and product development, the observation is that not all products are created equal. Not all products provoke the same kind of emotion that tell the same kind of story and relative to others. And I think that there are some categories Outdoor recreation is an example. Um, the beauty industry is an example. Um, the automotive industry that just have a certain appeal where consumers think more, care more about the performance of the products, what goes into them. Um, and it's very emotive. It's, it's almost it taps into, you know, at the risk of embellishing a bit, it taps into like a spirituality around who we are, like how we think of ourselves. And that that's an important observation, in my opinion, it, like that's our insight. And well, so as we were thinking about, you know, different materials and, and ingredients and ways to bring them to life that could tap into that, um, yeah, it was an interest and an enthusiasm for outdoor recreation. And, you know, I, I do a lot of um, cycling, like I'm not a competitive cyclist, but I, I like to ride bikes. And, and I was always amazed when, you know, 
you could have a carbon fiber bicycle that is three times, five times, maybe 10 times as expensive as a carbon or aluminum frame, yet people would pay those premiums, you know, in the spirit of quote unquote, you know, weight savings. But you're talking about, you know, grams. Like if you're anything like me, like you could just lose that weight on your body and make it up. Like you don't need to buy the much more expensive thing, but we convince ourselves that, you know, that's the thing to, to get. And so like within outdoor recreation, I was looking at, well, where do materials matter and where are their underserved markets? And I just happened to go and, and I had enrolled and signed up for a, a ski building workshop in uh, Innsbruck, Austria. And just because I was curious about what goes into building and I wanted to build a pair of skis. And it obviously was a transformative experience because among the things that I learned is that you have a bunch of brands that are all building skis with the exact same materials trying to find ways to differentiate how they build the skis, what goes into the skis. But the worst kept secret in outdoor recreation is not only are they using the same materials, but they're very often built in the same factories, but then just have different brand names on them. And that seemed like a really interesting place. Like if we could authentically and genuinely create performance materials as a point of differentiation in a more sustainable way, who wouldn't want to buy that? Who wouldn't want to migrate towards that vision of the future world? And, and so that was, you know, those are some of the elements and the sources of inspiration for how we got to where we are today. And uh, did you do the workshop with Spur Art in Innsbruck? With yes. The yeah. I know them. I've been there. <laughs> we're talking yeah. about we're talking about new materials and skis uh, with yep. them. So uh, we can we can make some advertisement for them. Fantastic. <laughs> and and so so what makes the skis better now? So you said already you said something like weight uh, weight to perform uh, weight to strength ratio, which means lighter skis, um, yeah. damping properties and. Yeah, and then the adhesive, the bond strength of the cast urethane to the adjacent materials, all of which translates to a better experience on this. And especially in the backcountry, like it translates to safety considerations uh -huh. um, that, yeah, are important. And I, I'm I'm just asking these questions because I've I've I very much agree with your with your statement about you know you, driving also the emotions of people um, is is a very uh, crucial thing in order to to bring innovations to life um, and we've been uh, developing uh, bamboo based materials and uh, we also just started doing skis and skateboards because we said this is the best way to to tell the people uh, or to showcase like the performance and and the benefits um, and the easiest for others to understand if they are familiar with with an uh, product that is that they, they have emotional uh binding to it um and by that time i remember i i, I got to know uh checker spot because of uh your like i think it was in in connection with uh your partnership with dps skis do you still is yeah. it still on yeah still on? yeah we're continuing to work with them yeah and then that's that's the brand which is uh which is now uh 
commercializing all all the four solutions? Not the, not the only brand. We we now have a portfolio of um, companies, even beyond outdoor recreation, that we're working with, um, either in the qualification or where they're currently utilizing the materials, um, based upon what we brought to life through Wonder Alpine. Oh, yeah. And then, as I as I mentioned when I was describing the five different materials and ingredients that we're commercializing, yeah. we're also in totally different markets like uh, personal care, and then more recently, um, some food and nutrition applications. Uh-huh. What 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 is the food and nutrition coatings or? Packaging? No, no. With food and nutrition, um, think heart healthy oils or oils that. Okay. Um, have nutritional benefits that are maybe harder to access um, from conventional sources that we've been able to produce um, through fermentation. Wow. Well, that's that shows actually, I think this is uh, coming to the the your slogan, which is designing with biology. If you, you see the broad uh, space of applications that you can open up uh, using the, the biology, Yes. Can, can, yes. Can I can I just jump in here with something that, that I've been uh, curious to to, to uh, you, you touch you, you actually used the the, the word uh, uh, some some minutes ago, but but coming back to scalability uh, uh, and yeah scalability within within the the sectors that you're you're operating in personal care sports uh, as you mentioned et cetera, but but I'm also curious. I mean, I, I, hearing what you're talking about. Uh, um, and the, the the materials that are coming out from this, uh, you know, I, I start to think about scalability into other sectors. Uh, uh, I mean, because if you can take, for me, it's always interesting to, to look at at these these so cool innovations, and then and then ask the question: How can we scale these up so that when you look at the the issues on a global scale in terms of carbon footprint? Uh, uh, and and the, the 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 massive scale of the of the problems that we're wanting to to deal with when it comes to carbon footprint uh, of industry and so on, uh, you know, um, can 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 we scale these uh, products? Uh, your technology, uh, your IP, uh, probably you have IP here too, uh, up to uh, to a point where you know we start talking about uh, when it comes to uh, let's say, say um, you're 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 looking into a replacement of materials that go to replacing plastics from fossil-based sources. I mean, can you ever get to a scale of where you're talking uh, you as an entity, but 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 uh, the technologies around uh, which you're talking about can get up to I don't know 10% of replacing fossil-based or 20% or. Uh, I know that's a very long question. I'm sorry, but I'm yeah, old. no, it, I, it's the right question to ask, and something that we've thought a lot about. And and the answer to the question is, if the fundamental question is, can we scale? We know the answer is yes, and yes, as defined as fermenters that are at industrial scale. So to be specific, think you know, greater than 500,000 liters in, in volume. And so this gets into, you know, production on an annual basis that takes you into millions of gallons. 
of, of production per year. Now, John, you, you said 10% of petroleum, like the global output of petroleum is extraordinarily large. I mean, we're talking about billions of barrels, right? And so like at 10%, the, the rate limiter in what we're doing really lies with feedstock. It's the, the carbon that's fed, the sugar that's fed into the process. Mm-hmm. And today we can, we can at commercial scale and with existing sources of fermentable sugar and feedstock build a big and important business that can have real impact. But to truly take a bite out of the climate crisis, I think is going to require some additional innovation in finding alternative sources of fermentable sugar beyond what is produced agriculturally. Things like, can we use, you know, municipal waste streams of yard clippings and, you know, convert cellulosic sugar, cellulosic sources into fermentable sugar. Can we think about, there's already groups that are, um, are innovating, capturing carbon dioxide and converting that into fermentable sugar or capturing methane and converting that into a feedstock for a microbial process. Some of those innovations are still in flight. They're still being developed. And I think as they come into commercial maturity, the kind of technology that we have will be really well suited to have the kind of impact on the overall climate crisis, as well as the 10% on petroleum that you were referring to. Uh, that, that 10%, I know that that's way out there high as far as something realistic, you know, but uh, I just throw that out there because also, and then I'll, I'll shut up here. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, I've come to think that that when it comes to dealing with these bigger, uh, you know, huge issues of, of the global uh, CO2 footprint, um, I, I used to look for like one big, here is the, the game changing solution that's going to solve 95% of the problem. Uh, and, and, and having that mindset that I used to have uh, would cause me to look at, at other solutions and innovations and say, okay, well, great, but that's a boutique solution. Uh, that's I, a trap. I, I, I've moved away from that because, yeah. because that, 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 I mean, that, that's number one. Uh, there is no 95% solution. And, yeah. and so therefore, where are we going to look? We've got to look to where these innovations like yours are coming from and then add and add and add different angles, different approaches. Uh, no one is claiming some silver bullet to it all. Uh, yeah. But we're looking for a, a big, huge portfolio of, of solutions uh, is what I'm thinking. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that mentality that you just described is very, very common. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we, we hear it in the media and the press from, you know, big, again, fortune 500 companies that are looking for like that immediate yeah. cure. And like, we want to impact a billion people in you know, 10 years or less. Yet when you look historically at, say the petrochemical industry, like it took decades to build what exists today. It's, it, it doesn't happen overnight. The rate of change with supply chains and with moving goods and you know, creating finished products, it's not the same rate of change that we've seen in information technology. 
It's, it's just a different, it's, it's a physics problem. And, and so I think it's a mistake to look for that silver bullet, but instead to think about, you know, where can you have market traction today with positive unit economics that provide a basis upon which, as you pointed out, to grow and to bolt on and to continue to progress towards uh, a more virtuous future. And so, yeah, I, I think one of the areas that Checkerspot specifically has drawn some criticism historically, actually, I think it still applies today, is that people might look at the company and say, well, you guys have demonstrated product market fit in skis. Gosh, isn't that cute? Like, it's just, it's a small niche market. And I, and I think that that misses the point. And, and I think we need to reframe the scope of the challenge and think about where can we establish a point of entry and grow and build as has happened historically. It's no different than, you know, I sometimes think about, you know, physical fitness, right? And, and if, if you woke up one day and you're like, I want to go be an Olympic athlete, <laughs> like you, you can't, you can't do that overnight. It's a journey. It takes time. And, and I think the mistake that people often make in the context of, you know, building any kind of fitness is just giving up because, you know, the first couple of months were hard or, you know, you weren't seeing the benefits and the gains. And, and yet it's, it's a journey. And if you stick with it and continue to build and grow, it can sometimes be surprising how far you can get. Yeah, and I'm I'm very happy that that it's not this ninety five percent one solution because otherwise we would have <clears throat> maximum two podcast episodes. Well, we, have, <laughs> <laughs> we have the chance to to, to be online a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, but um, I I I I love this this conversation and 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 I really like this uh, this approach of like yeah we this this last comparison of, of being an athlete and I think we this this shows also that uh, we need this endurance and we need to you know continue also training <laughs> so to speak yes. um, because that's that's also where you learn about the potential of of. Uh, yeah, being an athlete or these solutions in, in, in uh, translating this to, to the innovation. Yeah, I think we could talk uh, much, much more, um, especially also about the skis and uh, the last skiing season, because now you had, you had 220% more snow than the other years in California. That's what I heard. That's why I was, I was yeah, and I was I was so pissed off that I'm not in Europe this year. No, very dry in Europe. Nothing, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So definitely, uh, we we have to maybe uh, catch up um, another time on this on this one. Um, but we cannot let you go before we ask the most important question um, because we have a playlist, uh, the Plastic Climate Future playlist, where we always. Mm -hmm need at least one song from our guest that kind of uh, resonates with either the person or with the work that they do or simply is a good song that the world has to listen to. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it, this is kind of an easy one for me because um, I grew up in the 80s and have been, was especially in the 80s, a huge U2 fan. And I don't know if you guys are U2 fans, um, but 
they just put out, are you aware of this? They put out a release of yeah. like, it's, I don't know, 40, 50 songs um, that are reimagined. And there's something that just screams authenticity and like the journey of like living and, you know, just being at a phase of life where like the meaning that things take on and like the time that passes, it's extremely touching. And so my answer to your question is you two where the streets have no name. Oh my, you, you have no idea how much this connects with me, brother. Uh, let me tell you, and this is true story. Uh, we can take this up offline. Uh, I, I haven't I haven't contacted Bono or Paul Houston uh, for for the royalty uh, fees that should be paid to me, but I was a backup singer together with my brother uh, uh, on the Rattle and Hum uh, 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 album, but more so the uh, the, uh, the the actual video documentary that was made. Uh, oh, the song BB King when love came comes to town. Yeah. Before, Performed at Tarrant County Convention Center on the date you can look to the documentary of Rattling Hummond on the date that very day, that night, that recording, me and my brother were in the audience singing along. So, wow. so we are on that, and I'm still looking. I mean, if you know Bono or The Edge or or or, or, or the others, let me know because you know we we could use some royalty. I love, I love you, dude. The street where the streets have a name uh, are about heaven. Yep. I love you too. So anyway, <laughs> I never heard end. this story before, John. So this is true. Good, good, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. love you. Yeah, I love you too. So great, great. Okay, we're gonna we'll cut most of me talking here, but I love you. Too. I love you too. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks.